Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On this episode of Alert, we'll hear from Montreal-based author and activist Eve Engler about the pro-Zionist forces that have infected the NDP and the left within Canada. Also, we will hear from Canadian Dimension contributor J.P. LaPlante about Canadian mining companies operating abroad and the myth of corporate accountability. We will hear from poet and activist Christine Leclerc about what's being called the End Pipeline Project. And we'll hear from Stuart True, trade campaigner from the Council of Canadians, about the recently concluded talks in Brussels on the Canada-EU Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement. Here are the alert headlines for the week of January 27, 2011. Newly released documents show Palestinian negotiators have agreed to give up large tracts of West Bank land in peace talks with the Israeli government. The disclosure is among many contained in what is being called the Palestine Papers, over 1,700 files from inside Israeli-Palestinian negotiations dating from 1999 to 2010. The news network Al Jazeera began publishing details of the documents on Sunday. Minutes from a 2008 meeting indicate Palestinian negotiators offered to allow Israel's annexation of almost all of East Jerusalem without receiving any concessions in return. Al Jazeera says forthcoming documents will reveal new details about compromises the Palestinian Authority was prepared to make on refugees and the right of return, as well as on the Authority's security cooperation with Israel and its correspondence on the UN inquiry into the late 2008 attack on the Gaza Strip. Palestinian Authority leader Mahmoud Abbas claimed the documents were lies and a deliberate misrepresentation of the Palestinian position. Palestinian chief negotiator Saeb Erekat, who features prominently in the leaked papers, at one point refers dismissively to refugees as a bargaining chip and rules out giving Palestinians living in Lebanon or Jordan the opportunity to vote on a final peace agreement in a referendum. Tzipi Livni, then foreign minister, is also recorded as suggesting the transfer of Israeli Arab residents in areas straddling the Green Line to Palestinian control in exchange for land swaps. The latest documents also map Palestinian prostrations at the Obama administration's refusal to view 1967 borders as a basis for negotiations, a key concession wrung out of the Bush administration. The attorney for alleged army whistleblower Bradley Manning is accusing the military of intensifying their harsh treatment of Manning as he remains behind bars. The lawyer, David Coombs, said Manning was placed on a stricter suicide watch last week despite psychiatric reviews showing he is not a suicide risk and should even be taken off a less restrictive prevention of injury watch. According to Coombs, the military revoked Manning's lone hour of exercise and stripped him of all clothing except for his underwear. The military is also cracking down on Manning's visitors. Protests continue in Tunisia against the interim government formed after the overthrow of President Zin El Abidin Ben Ali earlier this month. Hundreds of people defied a curfew in the capital of Tunis on Sunday to camp outside the office of interim Prime Minister Mohamed Ghanouchi. Opposition activists want Ghanouchi and other officials who served under Ben Ali to resign. 
The interim government has pledged to release political prisoners and has placed two top Ben Ali advisors under house arrest in a new milestone for the Tunisian opposition. Thousands of Tunisian police officers, army service members, and government workers rallied in the capital on Saturday in a show of solidarity with the protests that ousted Ben Ali. Former Chicago police commander John Burge has been sentenced to four and a half years in prison for obstruction of justice and lying about torturing prisoners into making confessions. Burge was convicted in June following long-time accusations of overseeing the systematic torture of more than a hundred African-American men. Thousands of people have rallied in northwestern Pakistan to protest ongoing U.S. drone attacks that killed scores of civilians. On January 23rd, demonstrators in the city of Peshawar blocked a main road and held a vigil to mourn drone attack victims. According to Agence France Presse, U.S. drone attacks doubled in the North Waziristan region last year, with over 100 drone strikes killing more than 670 people. At least 13 people were killed in three recent attacks. Iranian prosecutors said Jafar Kazemi and Mohammad Ali Hajigay have taken photos and footage of the protests and distributed them on the internet. They were also found guilty of chanting slogans promoting the exiled People's Mujahideen of Iran. The People's Mujahideen of Iran is an exiled opposition group which has campaigned against clerical rule in Iran and before that the Iranian monarchy. It is seen by Tehran as a terrorist cell in the pocket of Western security services, but is also on Washington's list of prescribed organizations because of its history of violent attacks. Supporters of Lebanon's caretaker Prime Minister Saad Hariri have taken to the streets in protest at efforts by Iranian-backed Hezbollah to form the next government. Protesters who accuse the Shia Islamist movement of staging a coup are blocking roads and burning tires in several towns and cities. Hezbollah and its allies earlier won the nomination of their candidate Najib Mikati as the next prime minister. The U.S. expressed great concern over Hezbollah dominating government. Hezbollah leader Sheikh Hassan Nasrallah said that if the group's candidate was appointed prime minister, it would try to form another national unity government that included Mr. Hariri's western-backed future movement. Hezbollah is an, on the official U.S. list of foreign terrorist organizations and is subject to financial and travel sanctions. And those were the alert headlines for the week of January 27, 2011. Now for Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of January 27, 2011. United Steelworkers Local 1005 and its 900 members and 9,000 pensioners are waging a battle on two fronts. They are at once fighting against companies like U.S. Steel who are attempting to steal workers' futures by attacking their pensions and the Harper government who is attempting to hand public pensions over to private banks. The OFL, CLC, USW Local 1005, and Hamilton and District Labor Council are calling for a massive province-wide mobilization to stop U.S. Steel and other foreign-owned companies from wrecking our communities and stealing our futures. On Saturday, January 29th, meet at Hamilton City Hall at 1 o'clock p.m. and join the fight back. The 20th Annual Women's Memorial March for Missing and Murdered Women in Winnipeg is happening on February 14th. But from February 1st until the day of the march, there will be a number of commemorative events around the city. 
These include talking circles, art auction fundraisers, craft and poetry nights, movies, and music. Similar events are scheduled for Vancouver. For more information on these commemorative events and the march, go to womensmemorialmarch.wordpress.com. Angela Davis and Ward Churchill will be speaking at the University of Toronto on February 2nd as part of the 2011 Expression Against Oppression Week. Both speakers will deliver a lecture, followed by a panel discussion and a Q&A. Tickets are $16.50 for students, $29.50 for non-students, and are available at www.uofttix.ca. Todd Gordon will be in Vancouver on February 2nd to launch his new book, Imperialist Canada. Gordon will present alongside Tria Donaldson, who will be discussing campaigns against local mining projects, and Bayron Figaro, who will be presenting on struggles against Canadian mining companies in Guatemala. The event will be held in Room 700 at the SFU Harbour Centre. The Manitoba Eco Network will be hosting their Real Green Film Festival this year on February 4th and 5th in Winnipeg. Force of Nature, the David Suzuki movie, will be screened on the 4th at the Winnipeg Art Gallery as part of a fundraising effort for the Manitoba Eco Network. The following day, there will be, no be a number of films being screened at the University of Winnipeg, along with plenty of discussion time devoted to the problems these films document. For more information, go to mbeconetwork.org. A fundraiser for Israeli Apartheid Week in Winnipeg is happening at the Mondragon on February 10th. The fundraiser will feature the special guests, technical children, and the resisting beef, Salinas and Adam CZ. Israeli Apartheid Week is March 14th to 18th. That was Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of January 27th, 2011. Eve Engler is a Montreal-based author and activist. He's uh, written uh, several books on the subject of Canadian foreign policy. Uh, his latest is Canada and Israel Building Apartheid. And uh, Alert has reached him in the context of talks he's given on the subject of uh, the, uh, the left and the NDP and their support for Israel. Uh, now, Eve, I know that you've made several, uh, done some writing on the subject of uh, the NDP and the CCF and their historic support for Israel. Could you possibly outline some of the more, uh, like, shall we say, notorious examples of uh, where the, uh, the NDP and the left, which has billed itself as the social conscience of the country, has been uh, not only downplaying their criticism of Israel, but actually enthusiastically supportive of that policy? Yeah, well, for uh, for decades, uh, most of the official left was quite sympathetic to uh, to Israel. Um, so, for instance, in 1956, um, the Canadian Labour Congress uh, passed a resolution calling on the Canadian government to sell uh, arms um, to Israel. Um, this is the same year that Israel invaded uh, Egypt with the the former uh, uh, colonial powers, Britain and, and France. Um, 1975, uh, Tommy Douglas, uh, in a speech to the Hizdetrut uh, Labor Federation in Israel, said that the main enmity of uh, 
of those who uh, opposed Israeli policy was because of how well Israel treated um, its workers. Um, so there's there's a history of uh, of um, uh, left support uh, for Israeli policy, um, despite um, the you know the the occupation. Uh, in the case of Tommy Douglas, he made his his comments uh, eight years after Israel occupied uh, the West Bank and Gaza, and uh, almost three decades after Israel uh, expelled 750,000 Palestinians uh, in the uh, Nakba in 1947-48. Um, so. There's this history of, uh, of Canadian um, left support for Israel, and, and the point of the talk uh, yesterday at the uh, University of Winnipeg was uh, to, to discuss the Manitoba uh, NDP's uh, support for Israel. Um, um, really, uh, it's an ongoing uh, situation where the uh, premier of the province uh, visited Israel about, uh, about two months ago and signed an accord between Manitoba and uh, the Jewish National Fund, which is a uh, which is a racist, really a racist organization that's been involved in the dispossession of of, of Palestinians, um, and so the event yesterday was really to to draw light. Sorry, could you explain like specifically what you mean by the the Jewish National Fund uh, supporting racist policies vis-a-vis -vis Palestinians? Well, um, uh, it's the point of the Jewish National Fund is to um, to to have uh, Jewish-owned, uh, Jewish-controlled land. Uh, abstractly, I would be made uncomfortable by that idea, um, um, and, uh, you know, sort of an exclusionist, racist uh, sort of idea. Concretely, in the context of um, uh, Palestinians, uh, um, um, it's meant dispossession. So the Jewish National Fund for a hundred, over 100 years has been involved in a uh, combination of buying Palestinian land with the intent of uh, making it exclusively uh, uh, Jewish um, controlled and, and, and Jewish used. Um, and concretely in the case of the Jewish National Fund Canada, um, there's the example of Canada Park where uh, three Palestinian villages were, were um, uh, uh, villages were were driven from their homelands after the 1967 war, and the Jewish National Fund created something called Canada Park on these three villages' land. Um, you have examples within uh, Israel proper in the in the in Galilee of of driving in the 80s, driving um, Palestinian citizens of Israel from their homes, and uh, and the Jewish National Fund um, taking over the land. Um, today, even today in the Negev, you have Bedouin communities that are being driven from their homes, and uh, and Jewish National Fund uh, 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 forests being built. So the intent—it's—it's it's a colonial organization. It, the, the the intent of the JNF is to, and they're open about this too, to have uh, exclusively uh, Jewish. Uh, controlled land, which is which is ultimately uh, you know racist. Okay, how could could you possibly explain how this uh, uh, pro-Zionist influence ever insert, inserted itself into the establishment of the NDP? And I guess it is the establishment because there there are uh, new Democrats, including perhaps most notably uh, Libby Davies and Sand Robinson, who are uh, not quite on that page. Yeah, no, I think actually today things are a lot better. I think that the, there is a, a, the majority of the NDP uh, activists, um, I think, are actually quite, um, quite hostile to Israeli policy. But there's a history. I mean, if you look at individuals like someone like Tommy Douglas, um, his, his, his biog main biography is called The Road to Jerusalem. So he has, comes from this Christian um, background, which uh, there's a strong current of Christian Zionism within, within Canada going back, uh, you know, more than a century. Um, uh, was it that that was influencing him? Uh, was it the fact that uh, Israel was seen as an outpost 
of of the West in the Middle East, and that the reality, the history of uh, NDP CCF foreign policy has been one very sympathetic to organizations like NATO, sympathetic to the general imperial um, uh, geopolitical positions being taken. Um, w was it the fact that there was uh, um, uh, uh, Jewish Jewish members of the NDP that were pushing for? For Israel, um, support for Israel, um, was it the fact that there was this idea that Zionism, labor Zionism, and that, that Israel was a sort of successful socialistic um, kind of model? I think it was a mix of all of that. Um, and so we, I can't necessarily, you know, uh, point to just one, one reason. Um, but the reality was, and, 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 and alongside all of that, of course, is, is, um, is the idea or is, is, is racism, really. It was the, the, the sort of uh, wiping out of Palestinians from, um, from, uh, uh, from the matter. Because you can't really see Israel as a socialistic society uh, without sort of... Uh, uh, um, not, you know, taking into account the fact that the so, sort of, you know, the kibbutz were built upon uh, Palestinian land and they were built upon the exclusion and dispossession of Palestinians. Um, so I think that there's, a, you know, a series of historic reasons. Fortunately, uh, the more sort of egalitarian ideas of the left, I think, are showing through today increasingly on the issue and, and people like Libby Davies and, and, uh, and other um, um, you know, the activists with the NDP are increasingly critical of Israeli policy and of Zionism, and it's because I think in large part there's a growing uh, sense of, uh, you know, opposition to racism and opposition to, uh, to colonialism, um, but there's still a lot of work, a lot of work to be done on that issue. Well, there are also um, the uh, influences outside the party. Uh, one can think, for instance, of the, the mainstream media and how certain uh, reporting is not... Uh, Maybe if they were doing a, a more, uh, I, I don't know, honest job of, of reporting the realities in the Middle East and Canada, Canadian foreign policy, that uh, maybe uh, it would change the perception and, and the party itself might feel more open. So, I mean, are, are there any um, insights you have perhaps uh, in recent times that, uh, you know, well, there's no doubt that I think that part, a major explanation for why Jack Lee, like the NDP would get more votes in a direct sense by taking a pro-Palestinian positions than they do by sort of either saying nothing or, or taking sort of sympathetic positions towards Israel. But the they would get skewered in the mainstream. If they would say anything close to the truth of the matter, which Libby Davies did back in, back in after the attack against the flotilla in May, where she said the occupation didn't begin in 67 and actually began in 48, which is, you know, dozens and dozens of Israeli historians have shown that, yes, 750,000 Palestinians were driven from their home and the occupation obviously began uh, back in 48, and if not earlier, if you want to get into that. But um, the, the, uh, the mainstream media, uh, that's not acceptable things to say within the dominant media in Canada. And um, there would be uh, journalists who were generally sympathetic um, to the NDP uh, who, if the NDP took more and more strident positions on Israel, those journalists would feel under pressure to, to you know, say less positive things about the NDP on all issues, not just about this, but generally, um, you know, color more negative um, uh, media coverage of the NDP. So I think that is part of the calculation. I think, and, and to, you know, to a certain extent, uh, from a sim simple electoral standpoint, it's actually, I think, a probably a good calculation from the NDP standpoint. You know, morally, it's, it's dubious, um, um, but politically, in the current context. Now, that's the responsibility of the social movements, of the uh, progressive sectors to build 
that consciousness outside of the structures of the dominant media to build our own uh, independent media like, uh, like Alert Radio um, that, that you know, talks something closer to the truth on these matters and doesn't just uh, you know, follow the whims of, of power. Well, Eve Engler, I want to thank you for the plug, and I want to thank you for uh, helping us with this, uh, understand uh, this whole uh, development. So uh, thank you, and uh, all the best on your tour. Thanks a lot. From January 17th to January 21st, Canadian and European Union representatives have been consumed by the sixth round of negotiations focused on the Canada-EU Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement, known as CETA. Proponents, like Conservative Minister Peter Van Loan, argue that enhanced trade relationships like CETA are the key to Canada's and the world's economic recovery. Critics, on the other hand, see dangers to the environment and public services. To explain some of these concerns, Following the uh, latest round of talks, Alert is speaking with Stuart True. He is the trade campaigner for the Council of Canadians, a member of the Trade Justice Network, and he was in Brussels as part of a delegation speaking out against the CETA deal. So, Stuart True, welcome to Alert. Hi, Michael. Okay, Stuart, could you... uh, Here in Canada... Uh, not too many people are that aware that we're involved in uh, free trade uh, negotiations with the European Union, let alone the sixth round. Uh, could you tell me about just how much uh, popular awareness there is about CETA in Europe, as far as you can tell? Well, I think it's a lot like Canada. It's, it's, uh, it could be a lot more. There could be a lot more public awareness, but it's significantly higher, I would say, from when the last time we were there in July last year for the uh, the negotiating round there in Brussels then. I mean, since then, um, we've seen groups get quite concerned about the tar sands links, for example. While we were there on Monday, we were able to participate in a, in a protest that was organized by the UK Tar Sands Network and Friends of the Earth Europe uh, outside the European Commission. And this was against the, uh, you know, the way that the CETA agreement, as it is written now, um, would encourage the the trade of tar sands into Europe, which is something they're trying to do uh, through domestic policy there. So concerns there uh, from environmental groups, but also in general, um, you know, coalitions much like the Trade Justice Network uh, in in Europe, this would be the Seattle to Brussels Network, uh, put out a statement last week, um, completely opposed to the senior negotiations. And so Seattle to Brussels comprises dozens and dozens of groups from across Europe, on top of the network, it was signed by several other groups, you know, fair trade, environmental, uh, uh, some labor-related groups as well. And so, you know, from July to now, we've just seen, like, we've seen a quadrupling of the interest and of the concern about the negotiations and how they're going to affect European public policy, um, which was good. Now, the... the uh you, you mentioned the, the tar sands. Uh, what about other areas? Uh, for instance, uh, the uh, genetically modified organisms, which uh, it's been suggested this would uh, enable uh, more uh, trade in, in GMOs. Do you have any mm-hmm. uh, sense about how popular that is? Well, I mean, cer- certainly that would be highly controversial in Europe if something in the agreement, if GMOs were included in the agreement uh, around, you know, certain guaranteed access, for example, for genetically modified organisms. The, the funny thing about <clears throat> GMOs is that 
they're not included so far in the text. And this is a bone of contention uh, for some of the western provinces, you know, as far east as Manitoba, where they do export considerable, uh, you know, levels of GM canola, for example, and they would like to see markets open in Europe. From what we can tell and what we've seen, uh, it's just not going to happen. It's an impossibility, which actually, if you're a Canadian negotiator, a provincial negotiator, makes the deal look a lot less sweet. Uh, if, if your main goal is increasing these crops, the exports, and you're not going to have any chance of getting that in the CETA deal, then why are you negotiating? And so uh, it's something we're going to have to keep an eye on, I guess, in the future rounds as they get to agriculture. Um, and also as they kind of firm up the details of this uh, so-called technical barriers to trade chapter, which would potentially include a section on GMOs. But right now it's explicitly excluded. Um, and so that's an area where I think we're going to see more controversy perhaps in the next round in April and perhaps the following round back in Brussels in in July. Now, another uh, <clears throat> realm in which CETA uh, and your group in particular has been critical is on the whole issue of local level procurement, subnational uh, procurement. Uh, what are the attitudes uh, in the European Union with regard to that? Well, I think Canadians would be interested to know, at least maybe those um, who've been following since the this Buy America deal we signed with the United States last year, uh, they would be interested to know that where Canada is going the route of, you know, including municipalities and towns and cities and, and uh, universities, for example, in these binding procurement chapters, which, uh, you know, severely restrict how they spend public money. They make it very difficult to impossible to consider other social objectives when you're, when you're spending public money, and those could be environmental or sustainable objectives. You know, you want to buy local because it's green. Uh, to local development um, conditions on public spending. You know, you want the company to hire a certain amount of the workers from around town, or you, you want them to use local inputs because, you know, you want to help develop that economy. Um, you know, whereas we're going the route through these agreements of restricting public spending, um, the European Union is right now in the process of rethinking its procurement uh, policy uh, and creating more space for municipalities in Europe to look at those kinds of social priorities and spending. And so so what we could end up with in this deal, and, and I, uh, I wrote this in a, in a blog this week, we could end up with making can, Canadian municipalities making these commitments to, uh, to an agreement where in the European Union we don't get the same access that the European companies are going to get here in Canada. So uh, it's just another reason, I think, why, why the provinces, the territories and municipalities here in Canada should be second-guessing, moving very far, moving, moving at all, I think, down this, um, the road to a procurement chapter with the European Union. We're going to get stiffed at the end of the day because as the more powerful uh, jurisdiction, uh, they're going to do what they want at the end of the day. And if what they want to do is to create space for, for cities and towns to uh, you know, put local preferences on spending there, then <laughs> we're then we're lost, right? We've lost a lot uh, for no for no gain in the European Union. Okay, <clears throat> so with all of these uh, factors in play, do you see any see any uh, realistic chance that the CETA might be derailed? Well, it could it could derail. I mean, we'd like to see. It. I mean, that's what, obviously what we're trying to do is to derail this thing, and you know, it's because we do see it as the latest in the line of uh, neoliberal trade agreements 
um, designed to basically increase the power of capital or power of corporations, however you want to say it, uh, relative to the the, the rights uh, of of peoples, right, of workers, peoples, the environment. And so clearly we, w- we would like to see this thing derailed. There are structural uh, issues um, that could derail it in the European Union. For example, if they have a hard time agreeing on whether to include an investor-to-state dispute process like we have in NAFTA, that's something that the Canadian government may look at and say, well, this is our major ask. You know, we, we like the idea of your companies being able to sue our provincial governments. Uh, when when policies interfere with their profits, so if you know if you don't agree to this, we're not interested in a deal. I think what's more likely to happen is the Canadian government is going to be the Harper government, I should say, will accept any deal and find a way to spin it as a good deal. Um, but this thing could drag out in the European Union. I wouldn't say uh, it's likely that it get derailed unless we derail it, unless public opposition derails it, and that's simply because the European Union is committed to CETA now. Uh, you know, where, where it might have been a little less committed in the beginning, it is now fully committed. It wants to see um, Canada's public services turned into private services, for example, transportation, energy, water. It wants to see money uh, freed up from the public system and put into the coffers of European companies. Um, it wants to go the route of an investor state dispute mechanism because it wants to be able to discipline governments in the European Union. This is a very neoliberal regime we're negotiating with. And so I think the real risk in Canada, again, is that we end up with a really bad deal uh, that, that on, on all levels, uh, not only threats to the environmental policy and social services, but also on a purely market, <laughs> market access level, we actually don't get what we're looking for in the European Union. So I think that's uh, uh, a major concern, and we're not we're not willing right now to say the chances of this derailing are strong enough that we can let let our guard down. Okay, well, Stuart, we'll continue to monitor this uh, these uh, negotiations, and uh, thank you very much for your uh, insights and sharing them with us here at Alert. Appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. Okay, and uh, that was Stuart True, a trade campaigner for the Council of Canadians and a member of the Trade Justice Network. Christine Leclerc is a poet and activist living in Vancouver. She is currently co-facilitating a poetry mega-project called N-Pipeline, which was launched last November. Alert has contacted Christine to discuss this project, how it works, and what they hope to achieve. Welcome to Alert Radio, Christine Leclerc. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me on. So, first of all, what, uh, how does this project work? Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. Um, Basically, I send out the call, and uh, I add the contributions I receive to the project blog, uh, which folks can find by Googling and Pipeline. And um, I also add the poems to a line that scrolls at the top of the page. Um, The project's also shared, uh, well, through wheat-pasted posters, through readings, um, and other formats that are, you know, emerging um, as the project goes on. Um, tell us a little bit about what the project is itself. It's it's a type of collaborative poetry, correct? It is. That's right. Um, the uh, The goal of the project is to write uh, 100, sorry, 1,173 uh, kilometers of collaborative poetry. And um, it's interesting, actually, because 
Uh, the other day, I was reading a, a National Energy Board uh, joint review panel update on the uh, Enbridge uh, Northern Gateway project. And um, I noticed that Enbridge had requested a one-kilometer corridor uh, in which to route the proposed pipeline, um, uh, which this poem is being written in resistance to. And um, I guess what I discovered is that originally the scale I'd worked out for the pipeline was based on the combined diameter of the proposed pipelines, which is uh, about 1.4 meters uh, wide. And uh, when I read about um, this corridor that Enbridge has requested, I realized that I had uh, vastly underestimated the scale of the project. So um, it's a little bit strange, but uh, we actually have uh, reached the, the goal and, and far surpassed it. Um, the pipeline is now over 44,000 kilometers long um, based on this rescaling. Um, so it's... Um, it's a funny position to be in because I thought the project would take a couple of years to complete. Um, but um, now uh, what what I've done is um, I've set up a conference call um, on Groundhog Day. And um, so that's February 2nd. Uh, I'll be taking place at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And I invite anyone and you know to join and um, discuss what uh, what to do next with this this over 40,000 kilometer uh, windfall <laughs> in the end pipeline, um, the number to call would be 1-888-289-4573. And the, uh, the access code is 69-64-129. So. Where is this response that you've been getting coming from? Uh, it's been coming from around the world, actually. Uh, well, I have uh, quite a few responses from up north along the, uh, the proposed pipeline route. Um, but I also have uh, many responses from uh, Vancouver, Seattle. I have um, responses from Istanbul, um, from uh, Athens, uh, gosh, uh, from uh, Puerto Vallarta, um, from Miami, from Oklahoma. You know, um, responses have really been coming uh, in from all over. So, um, can you read us uh, one one part of the con- or one contribution that you particularly like? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I, I chose a poem that um, that uh, marks the point where we actually reached the 1,173-kilometer uh, mark, which is um, a collaborative piece by a Vancouver-based writing group called R3. And um, yeah, I'll go for that. Uh, warriors whoop at me from between the trees. The sound of drumbeats is inside me. Each of the drumbeats is a poem long. The rhythm pulls me in. We dance together. Our feet alternate between too heavy to lift and lighter than air. The logical conclusion is lighter than water. I say that because my thoughts float outward on the waves. And when they are far, far out at sea, I let them sink. A tangled web of madness lingers in my thoughts. The web is the shape of my curiosity. Yet, try as I might, Nothing will stick. It slides off, leaving a thin trail of goop to mark its passage. The horizon that I thought was there will pass soon, too. I will walk into a world heretofore unseen. Everything will be new, different, special, better than any dream. This is the news we hope to print. 
A metal cube is twisted in the landscape. With all the strength that I can muster, I sink it back to normalcy. What is normal, really, but just a different type of dream. I dream of a new normal. The air fills with promise. I finally smile. That was wonderful. We'll uh, hear some more of the uh, poetry on Groundhog Day. Uh, Alert has been speaking with Christine Leclerc about the collaborative poetry mega project, The End Pipeline. Thanks for speaking with us. It sounds like a really interesting project. Thank you. Yeah, it's my pleasure. The January issue of Canadian Dimension features several articles about the invasion of the Global South by Canadian mining giants like Barrick Gold and Gold Corp. Throughout Latin America and Africa, these mining companies, among the largest in the world, are known more for their human rights abuses and environmental destruction than their humongous size. And the Harper government, like its liberal predecessors, provides financial and diplomatic support for their activities. Our next guest, J.P. Laplante, co-wrote an article we call Snake Oil and the Myth of Corporate Social Responsibility, one of the articles in this special issue. J.P. is a graduate student at the University of Northern B.C. and recently spent six months in Guatemala investigating how communities there are organizing against Canadian mining giant Gold Corp. We caught up with him on his way from the airport in Toronto. So, um... How are you doing today, uh, Mr. Laplante? Very good, thank you. So could, you? <clears throat> I'm doing fine. Okay, so could you first of all tell us how significant are Canadian mining companies as far as global extractive industries are concerned? Um, perhaps the best way to put it into perspective is that um, Canada represents probably the largest source of capital in the world for mining companies. So in a very real way, um, a significant proportion of the world, you know, of world mining is based out of Canada. And, of course, there are uh, a number of reasons for this, but one of them um, which we could point to is the fact that um, there is effective impunity um, in Canada for these corporations, which allows them to um, violate laws overseas and get away with it. Mm. Now, could you maybe give us um, a, a specific example of, of just how far Canadian mining companies are going in, in as far as the abuse of human rights in the Global South is concerned? Well, I, I think uh, to frame it properly, it needs to be understood that um, very often these companies are entering environments overseas which uh, which are already violent, and very often there are land conflicts. And so uh, a really good example, which I point to in the article, took place um, several years ago in Guatemala um, by a company called Hud Bay Minerals. Um, at the time, it was owned by Sky Resources, also Canadian. And prior to that, it had been an, uh, an subsidiary of INCO. Um, and what took place there is and we, I personally heard testimony from Maya communities who allege that uh, um, the Guatemalan military, police, and company security guards in the process of evicting them from their ancestral lands um, gang raped a number of women from villages nearby 
the Phoenix mine that's in uh, eastern Guatemala. And, you know, nothing has been done in Guatemala effectively um, to pursue justice on behalf of these villagers. And nothing's been done in Canada either to pursue justice uh, at the hands of this corporation. Now, could you possibly explain uh, what the resistance would be in terms of the Canadian government reining in these uh, mining companies' practices? Well, going back about five years, there had been, you know, increasingly vocal concerns raised about the impact of Canadian mining operations overseas, and it began a, a multi-year process of investigating this, hearing testimony. And increasingly over the years, there's been a very well-oiled um, corporate response to the fact that folks are calling for law reform here in Canada to deal with this, uh, this impunity. And so um, what we've seen is that the Harper government especially has um, just refused to budge at all. And so what we saw in 2010 was the... Uh, the basically the Bill C-300, which had been a proposal to create mechanisms within the Department of Foreign Affairs um, to withdraw Canadian um, government support from companies that were shown to be violating human rights. The Harper government shot that bill down. Um, and it's also worth pointing out that it wasn't just the Harper government. There were Liberal MPs who were noticeably absent from that vote. And so... Um, what we see is a very powerful mining lobby uh, in Ottawa and especially in Toronto and Vancouver, which uh, definitely have the ears of the, of the Harper government. So uh, when they talk about the practice of corporate social responsibility in which uh, it seems to be pursued, in which we're finding these companies are supposed to be essentially monitoring themselves, uh, you refer to that as the the myth of a corporate social responsibility. I, I wonder if you could uh, just guide us through how uh, these companies are, you know, putting this forward as an alternative to perhaps more binding kinds of uh, measures. Yeah. So there's been a, a very long, you know, long debate here about the difference between mandatory corporate social responsibility which I prefer to call corporate legal responsibility and voluntary corporate social responsibility. And so what we've seen take place as a response to these criticisms and the call for legal reform are um, companies, um, and I would say very effectively, uh, responding through public relations campaigns, which they call corporate social responsibility campaigns. The idea being that they put forward a set of goals or benchmarks, you could call it, by which they supposedly operate. But there are absolutely no mechanisms or watchdogs in place to monitor whether this is true or not. And so really, in my opinion, this is simply a public relations campaign put forward by these corporations and an effective one because it effectively convinced uh, you know, parliamentarians that uh, voluntary measures are sufficient to rein in these companies. And clearly, violations of human rights overseas are continuing, and so it's clear to folks that are, are you know, traveling and seeing this overseas that it's simply not the case, that what we actually need are legal reforms and mechanisms here in Canada that would allow victims from overseas to seek justice here in Canada. 
Okay, finally, JP, do you think you could uh, give us some uh, means by which uh, some responsible action could uh, possibly be moving forward on this point? Yeah, I, I think um, there there's very interesting, two very interesting cases going forward uh, based in Toronto um, by a law firm named Klippensteins. Um, the first being that they're taking a, a case forward from um, Ecuador on behalf of villagers who were um, violently attacked um, by security guards for Copper Mesa Mining Corporation um, who were trying to put a copper mine in there. Um, they're putting a lawsuit against the corporation forward on behalf of these villagers. The second being um, a case which just began recently on behalf of a, a community or a family in Guatemala where um, this woman's husband was uh, murdered. He had been a vocal critic, community critic of um, Bay Minerals. And so we have two cases here of uh, a law firm trying to push the boundaries of, of case law here in Canada. And I would, you know, highly suggest to folks that uh, not only that they inform themselves of, uh, you know, the work being done by Klippensteins, but they do their absolute best to call their MPs, prefer, hopefully uh, they're not conservative MPs, but to call their MPs and, and make this a serious issue that uh, we do need to create mechanisms within our own country that allow for justice to be sought by victims overseas. And well, I would say that uh, at certain levels there is an appetite for this, and um, there's a quote in the paper, or in the article, by former Supreme Court Justice Ian Binney saying that these barriers to justice are arbitrary and unnecessary. And so I think there's folks out there that recognize this, um, but unfortunately, the debate that took place on Parliamentary Hill last year simply made it a very, very polar, and um, unfortunately, Bill C-300 was shot down. Um, there is another bill which folks could um, inform themselves about and you know, write, write to their MPs about, and it was been tabled, um, hasn't, sorry, it hasn't been tabled, but it's been prepared by uh, Peter Julian, the NDP, MP called B Bill C-354, which more strongly resembles uh, um, legal reforms which would allow for civil civil suits in our courts. Um, very similar, actually, to what um, exists in the U.S., uh, what kind of law exists in the United States. So okay, any- so thank you very much, JP. We're going to have to uh, leave it there, but uh, we will continue monitoring this uh, process, and uh, thank you very much for your uh, your insights and for your article in the Canadian Dimension magazine. Okay, thank you. Have a good day. Okay. And that uh, was J.P. LaPlante, graduate student at the University of Northern BC and a contributor to Canadian Dimension magazine. Oh, the diamond is a ship, my lads, for the Davis Strait were bound, and the key it is a garnish it with bonnie lasses around. Captain Thompson gives the orders to sail the ocean wide Where the sun it never sets, me lads, nor darkness dims the sky For it's cheer up, me lads And let your hearts never fail For the bonny ship, the diamond, goes a-hunting for the whale All along the key of Peter Heed, the lasses stand around 
Where the shaws are pulled or in their heads and sat tears are running down. Oh, didn't you weep, my bonny lass, though ye be left behind? For the rose will grow on Greenland's ice before we change your minds. For it's cheer up, me lads, and let your hearts never fail. For the bonny ship, the diamond goes a hunting for the whale. Here's a health to the resolution, likewise the Eliza Swan. Here's a health to the battle of Roman throws and diamond ship of fame. We'll wear the trousers o' the white and the jackets o' the blue. When we get back to Peter Heat, we'll hey sweet hearts and new for its cheer up the lads. And let your hearts never fail, for the bonny ship the diamond goes a hunting for the whale. Oh, it'll be bright both day and night when the Greenland lads come home. We're a ship that's full of oil, me lads, and money to your name. We'll make the cradles for the rock and the blankets for the tear. And every lass in Peter Heat cry hush by my dear, for it's cheer up, me lads. And let your hearts never fail, for the bonny ship the diamond goes a hunting for the whale.
Come on, you lads, draw near to me That I be not forsaken This day was lost, the genie see And my living has been taken I'll go to see no We set out this day in the bright sunrise The same as any other My son and I and old John Price In the boat named for my mother I'll go to see no more Now it's well you know what the fishing has been It's been scarce and hard and cruel But this day by God we sure caught, caught And we sang and we laughed like fools I'll go to see no more I'll never know what it was we struck But strike we did like thunder John Price give a cry and pitched overside Now it's forever he's gone under I'll go to see no more Now a leak we've sprung let there be no delay If the genie see were saving John Price is drowned and slipped away So I'll catch the hole while you're bailing I'll go to see no But no leak I found From bow to hold No rock it was that got her But what I found Made me heart stop cold For every seam poured water I'll go God, I cried as she went down. 
That boat was like no other My father built her when I was nine And named her for my mother I'll go to sea no more And sure I could have another maid In the boat shop down in Dover But I would not love the keel they laid Like the one the waves roll over I'll go to sea no more So come on, you lads, draw near to me That I be not forsaken This day was lost the genie seed And my whole life has been taken I'll go to see no more Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Serbanuk. Alert headlines by Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days, prepared by Ben Wood. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.